Well, good morning to all you Minnesotans who claim the name and despise it. Welcome to church today. There's a song that says that this time of year, the Christmas time, is the most wonderful time of the year. And I so want to just sing it out, but it wouldn't be that wonderful. But maybe that line for you evokes these images of the perfectly decorated Christmas tree next to this warm fireplace and the people you care about in their pajamas as they're playing cards or sipping cocoa. And it's just bliss. But maybe when you hear about this time of year, instead you have this little mini panic attack start to happen because you think about the year-end reports and you think about the midterm finals or the mid-December final exams or you think about the work parties or the holiday parties with the neighbors or the, uh, oh, I forgot the last-minute target run at night because you forgot the Secret Santa gift that you have to have tomorrow morning and all of a sudden your heart is pounding and your your head is pounding, your heart's probably racing. And then if that's you with this wonderful time of the year, then how do you respond to the person that's energetically ringing that bell for Salvation Army? And they look friendly, but they seem lonely. And how do you respond to the friend who says, hey, do you have time this week to get coffee? But you have a feeling that it's not a 45 minute, let's catch up and see how each other's doing. Instead, it's the two hour, like I need to dump my pile on you conversation. Or, my favorite, the the checkout person that is like diligently scanning each and every item so, so slowly. And they're, they're politely talking to each and every person, especially the three people in front of you because you picked the wrong line. Is it still the most wonderful time of the year? Do not drive on County Road 42 on Saturdays near any mall. Uh, It's not a wonderful time of the year if that's you. But see, if you read like self-improvement books or you listen to life coach people talk, they'll say that part or most of the problem is that you and I need to learn how to say no more. That if you say yes to something that, that someone asks you to do that you either don't want to do or don't have time to do, then what you're doing is that you're actually spending way more time and resources trying to do some, something else for someone else or trying to please them, or you end up living other people's dreams other than your own, or they say that you're ruled by other people's expectations, Or they say you'll work so hard at trying to get something done for someone else that you'll actually start to wear your own body and soul down. Now, there might be some truth, you know, wrapped with a little guilt and shame in that, but I think that we get this pressure to say no more than anything else that we've experienced. You know, if we look throughout history, long lens, big lens, wide lens, There's a tremendous pressure for you and I to say no. There's a tremendous pressure to to look at your boundaries and to manage your time and to make sure that you're not giving too much away. And I just wonder, whatever happened to the adventure of yes? 
to thinking about and going for something with God across the city or across the world to partner with him in ways that seem, seem to defy logic or seem to defy common sense, to be a part of bringing something good out of something that seems dark or seems difficult or where you know God put th- good things in there, they just haven't been called out. What happened to that? See, I think whenever we're contemplating a yes from God, there's always a pressure to say no. But there's actually three questions I think we can ask ourselves that can start to push back on that pressure so that if God's in it, we can say yes. And so today, I'd like to look at the birth of Jesus through this lens of adventure and pressure of saying yes. So if you have a Bible or a device, turn to Matthew chapter 1. We, uh, we might come back to that genealogy that's right at the beginning of Matthew chapter 1. But we're going to start in verse 18. And if you've heard these verses before, um, my prayer would be that you would just ask the Holy Spirit to still speak to you. Because there's still God's word. And there's life in them. So Matthew chapter 1, verse 18. It's the word of the Lord. It says this is how the birth of Jesus, the Messiah, came about. His mother Mary was pledged to be married to Joseph, but before they came together, she was found to be pregnant through the Holy Spirit. Because Joseph, her husband, was faithful to the law and yet did not want to expose her to public disgrace, he had in mind to divorce her quietly. But after he had considered this, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream and said, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take Mary home as your wife, because what is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will give birth to a son, and you are to give him the name Jesus. God saves, because he will save his people from their sins. And all this took place to fulfill what the Lord had said through the prophet. The virgin will conceive and give birth to a son, and they will call him Emmanuel, which means God with us. This is God's word. And it's good. And when we look at this, my guess is you're like me. You think of all the ways you've heard this before, all the other ways you've read this before. And so we just say, God, Uh, We come to this story, whether we know it or not, with fresh ears in a new heart, a renewed heart. And God, if we can't do that, we just ask that you do that for us. That no matter if we think it's a wonderful time of year or not, we would hear what you have to say to us today. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, if you were pledged to be married in the times of the Bible, it meant way more than engaged. If, if they had bank accounts, if they had banks in biblical times, then you would open a joint bank account together, even though you were pledged to be married. Not quite married, but still more than engaged. It means that if they had shopping centers, a high V or your like, then you would go grocery shopping together. You'd start to put your list together. If you were the husband, you would probably start building the house that you and your spouse, your wife, were going to live in, and it would likely be an extra room off of her parents' house. How's that for close quarters? But these would all be things that you would start to do as you are pledged to be married. It's one, just one small step away from being married. And what we don't know, we know 
we can pretty well get that from the story and from study of history, but what we don't know, what scholars and historians have never figured out, is how and when Mary told Joseph that she was going to have this Holy Spirit baby. Now, in Luke's account of Jesus' birth, Mary received this revelation, this God revealing from an angel of the Lord who said that she would conceive this, this Holy Spirit child. And after receiving the revelation, she goes to her relative Elizabeth's house, who is also pregnant, and they have this kind of glorious, fun encounter. But she stays there for three months. And again, we don't know if she told Joseph before she left or after she returned. But I think either way, they have several weeks or maybe even a few months to wonder, to pray, to ponder, and contemplate the situation that they now find themselves in, which was not part of their plan. And there's a lot packed into this one little verse in in 119. Because Joseph, her husband, was faithful to the law and yet did not want to, to, to expose her to public disgrace, he had in mind to divorce her quietly. I hope you hear the conflict that's going on in those verses because Joseph is this guy who's faithful to the law, meaning that he's grown up in the church. Even though he's Jewish, he's got this synagogue, he's got the temple, he goes to the seven feasts, at least three of them he has to travel for. He does this, he hears God's word, he's memorized God's word like most Jewish men have had happen even if they're not religious scholars and so that's where he goes first. He goes to God's instruction for guidance. And I don't know if you catch this, but much like us, sometimes when we go to God's word, it's just not as clear as we'd like it to be. Because there's a place in Deuteronomy that says that if a woman is unfaithful to her husband, that she should be stoned. But there's also a place in Numbers that says if a a married party thinks that the other is being unfaithful, usually it's against the woman. um, That's not a statement of behaviors. That's a statement of kind of male-dominated society. But if there's this wonder if the wife has been unfaithful, they can do this mini-inquisition with, like, semi-private with the priest. And through a series of questions and a series of prayer, they can try and figure out if the woman is guilty, she'll have a curse. She won't be able to have kids. And if she's not guilty, then she'll be able to have kids. Everything will be fine right? Because that's always the case when you have a little mini inquisition and word starts to get around. But that's what's potentially, I think, with pretty good chance, that's what's going on in the story right here. And so we have to realize that there are pressures when Ever we face a decision like this. I think there's a pressure from the outside of popular culture that would have absolutely included Joseph's religion, but it would have also included this concept of honor and shame that is very dominant throughout the ancient Far or Near East. And so this idea of honor and shame is like with this inquisition. If someone is behaving badly, what you do is you shun them and that will get them to behave you know, more appropriately, or so it goes. And so this part of the culture and this part of the culture, that would have seemed very normal to have a mini inquisition and then to treat her as an outcast if she was guilty or to try and treat her as not an outcast if she's not guilty. 
This would be part of their religion to even try and judge this, even though divorce had happened and so not many people had been stoned for adultery. The ideas are very prevalent and no matter how weird it sounds to us, in every culture, there's something called what everyone else is doing. And so for us, it might be different, but for them, there's this, this is what they would have been feeling. There's this other piece, though, for Joseph that is a pressure from the inside. It's his own values and virtues. Do you hear it? Like he's faithful to the law, yet he does not want to, to, to expose her to public disgrace. He's got this, this pull and push going on inside of him. And so he's thinking, what is a God-fearing man to do? How can I be true to God and not cruel to Mary? Do you ever feel the pressure when you're in situations like this? Maybe it's not just like this, but when you're trying to say yes to God and yet you're feeling this push and this pull, this pressure from the outside, there's one young woman that I heard about who started feeling this pressure after she told her dad she was pregnant. And she decided just to tell him because he was going to find out anyway, but she did not expect to get kicked out of the house because of it. So she went to her mom, and her parents were divorced, and, and she didn't expect a warm welcome from her mom, but she was very surprised when her mom said, mm-mm, not here. And in her 18-year-old mind, she's like, wait a second, you're divorced. Is that really that different than, you know, being pregnant before you're married? But it's the situation she found herself in. And so she's got no's from both her parents and she's just graduated, like barely graduated from high school and homeless. She never expected that. But if she's honest, she probably never expected to be just graduated from high school and pregnant. So she starts staying with friends. And she would stay, she'd call to sleep over or maybe talk about problems at home, maybe stretch the truth a little bit and at least to the friends whose parents weren't going to ask a lot of questions. But that got old really fast. So after about a month, she found herself homeless again. And she knew going to the guy was out of the question. And and she thought about going to her relatives, but she had this idea that maybe word had started circulating amongst the relatives. And so, or with this complicated mixture of shame and fear and uncertainty she turned to the one resource that wouldn't reject her, the car. The adventure and pressure of yes. The strange mixture of fear and shame and uncertainty. I think it pervades all of our lives, no matter what the situation. So what are we to do? See, when you and I are contemplating this yes to God, there's a pressure from the outside and a pressure from the inside. We have this pressure to conform to culture, to conform to other people's expectations, to conform to what our work obligations are, our family obligations are, or what everyone else is doing. I mean, even at Christmas, we have this unreasonable, I feel like we have this unreasonable pressure to to spend excessive amounts of money on stuff we don't need, even though it's cool. 
Like for some reason, even though all year I haven't needed a drone helicopter, all of a sudden the last three or four weeks, I'm like, oh my gosh, just get the cool that, you know, just afford to do the flips in the house and maybe outside and have the camera and spy on my neighbor. Like what happened to me? (laughs) Pressure from the outside. And yet you have a pressure on the inside your own virtues and values, your own sense of right and wrong, good and bad. And, and really, no matter how limited those values or virtues are, that's what you have. And I think there's this pressure. And, and quite possibly for this young woman, there could have been a pressure to abort the baby. You know, there could have been friends saying, hey, all your, all your problems will go away if you just do this. Maybe your parents will let you in the house. And what was up with the parents? What kind of pressure were they feeling like? If I, if I let her back in, am I saying this is okay? Am I saying we're not disappointed? These things happen to each of us. And I think they were happening in Joseph and Mary's story as well. We read it so fast that we forget that, oh, because God said it, it means it's okay. Even when we say yes to God, that doesn't mean it's always going to be Okay. But what keeps us from just going to the place that Joseph did? Well, I don't want to shame her publicly, but if I marry her, then that's going to say that I don't really care about how God says we're to live, so my best yes is really just going to be this quiet no. Two witnesses, one certificate of divorce, done. Have you ever had a situation where the best yes was simply a quiet no? Not really gonna, not really gonna do that. Too much pressure from out here or too much pressure from in here. And I think God reveals himself to Joseph in a way that, that is startling and powerful. The angel of the Lord appeared to him, Matthew says, and says to him, Joseph, son of David, now you'll have to go back and look at that genealogy. Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take Mary home as your wife because what is conceived in her, she will give birth to something from the Holy Spirit and she will give birth to a son and you are to give him the name Jesus because he will save the people from their sins. In verse 24, so Joseph woke up. That dream didn't keep him up all night. When Joseph woke up, he did what the angel of the Lord had commanded him to do, and he took Mary home as his wife, but he did not consummate the marriage until she gave birth to a son, and they gave him the name Jesus, and he gave him the name Jesus. See, I don't think God necessarily, this means that God is going to reveal himself to you in a dream, but I do believe that God is always revealing himself. He did reveal himself, he will reveal himself, and he is revealing himself to us through all time, in all kinds of people, all over the world. Through his word, through his spirit, through dreams, through situations that are in the church, outside of the church, through people speaking, through being healed, and even through people who don't know him yet. But do we take the time to stop and hear him. See, sitting in between the situations we find ourselves in and our response to them is a very critical 
space. They're not right next to each other. We, just because we're in this situation doesn't mean we have to respond this way. In this spot is your soul. And among other things, your beliefs about yourself, about God, and about the future are in this place. And if we stop, no matter what the situation we find ourselves in, whether it's our choices or someone else's, we still have a moment to hear God speak to our soul. And I think that's what happens to Joseph. I believe there's three questions that are implied, but still there in the story. And if we hear them, they can help us when we are contemplating a yes to God. And the first is this, what do you believe about who God says you are? What do you believe about who God says you are? Now, Joseph is his name, and his father is not David. Anybody find it back in the story? In this long list of people in Matthew chapter 1, who's Joseph's father? Anyone you want to share? Anyone? Bueller? Bueller, verse 15 or 16 or... Jacob, huh, interesting. Not only that, but if you know, you know the first part of the story of the Bible that God reveals himself to someone who uh, worships in this place called Ur where they worship moon gods. He might not even know who the one true God is, but that guy is called out of a place of the moon gods and where they worship and he crosses over to this promised land and in, through him, he is given this gift, this covenant, this promise that the whole world will be blessed through him. Abraham has Isaac, Isaac has Jacob, Jacob has 12 sons, another story for another day, but one of them, his favorite, is Joseph. Jacob, who's called the heel grabber, has a son who's called Joseph, whose mother names him that because she just wants to add at least one more. Joseph is the one called add more. In Chronicles, it says that Joseph is the firstborn son. Well, that's interesting because he's not the firstborn son. He's actually the 11th son. And even though it says in Chronicles 5 that Judah was the most powerful, Joseph was the firstborn because it doesn't mean... The firstborn doesn't mean you're actually the first one born. The firstborn means that you care and are concerned about those around you. When you are the firstborn, you are given double the inheritance, not because you're special because you were born first, but because it was your responsibility then to take care of all the grandparents, all the aunts and uncles, everyone that didn't have a family to stay with, you took care of them. So if you had three kids and you were the firstborn, that person would get half and then these two would get a quarter because you'd get double. Not just for yourself, but to care for all those around you. And sometimes that person isn't picked when they're born. It's while they develop. And so in the first story of Joseph, we see him mistreated by his brothers, but then his father, whose name goes from Jacob to Israel, because Israel is one who struggles with God and overcomes, Israel says to Joseph, hey, I want you to go see to the shalom or the peace of your brothers. See how your brothers are doing 
and he sends him out of his house to check on his kids. Genesis 37 is the first time that anyone actually goes out of their way to care for their brothers. There's a whole lot of things that have happened from Genesis 1 to Genesis 37. I'd love to take more time for it, but the point is, because Joseph does that, he lives into his name of adding more, and he takes on, through a course of actions and more and more stuff, takes on this spiritual and, and relational role of being the firstborn. He saves his whole family. So, is he Joseph, son of Jacob? Or is he Joseph, son of David? Because that's how the angel addresses him. Joseph, son of David. Well, David was God's ideal king. David is the one who's plucked and chosen when everyone else overlooks him. He is kind of called ruddy and small, and yet he can see things that only God can see. David is the one who can face giants when everyone else is paralyzed with fear. David is the one who becomes God's king and peace comes over all the people and the promised land. They finally live in the land as God has called them to live in the land. Is this his spiritual father? Is this the type of person that he is? David is the one who dreamt of building a house where God's spirit would dwell. Joseph, are you the son of Jacob or are you the son of David? What do you believe about who God says you are? And I think Joseph made a choice to be the son of David, to be the one who would lead, to be the one who would build a house where God's spirit would dwell. Not by physically carrying that child, but by physically taking in the woman who would carry that child. Do you believe who God says you are? Do you believe that you are who God says you are? First question. Second question, what do you believe about God's presence? When the angel of the Lord tells Joseph not to fear bringing Mary home because of what is in her, I think he had to ask himself, what do I believe about God's presence? Do I believe that God is actually with us, that he can be with us? Do I believe he can speak to us? Do I believe he can bring much good out of really hard situations? And if I do, then how does that change my reaction? See, with Jesus' life, death, resurrection and ascension. Jesus says, I am sending you the Holy Spirit. He will be your guide. He will be your counselor. He will be with you. He will speak to you and, and he will guide you into all truth and you will do greater things than these. Jesus says to his followers on earth, do they believe that or not? If God is with you, do you believe that you can live and do what God calls you to live and do? I think Joseph had to deal with that. In fact, maybe if this is hard for you, then you have to ask yourself, well, what does God with me mean in my everyday life? Like, 
are you living any different if God is with you than if God wasn't with you? I didn't really like that question, but I sense God telling me to say it, so haha. How am I living different because God is with me? The one true God, the one who brings himself in this form of a baby, the one who lives this perfect life, the one who dies in place of our death and goes to the Father to send a spirit to live with us, be present with us, and if we choose him, dwell within us to guide us. And three, what do I believe about God's power? Maybe you could say it as, what do I believe about God's powerful word Because when the angel reveals Jesus' identity as the one who will save the people from their sins, then I think Joseph has to ask himself, what do I believe about God's power? Do I believe that God's word will actually accomplish what God is saying it will? Do I believe that God has the power to redeem us, to restore us, to bring us back into relationship with him? And will I proclaim it in the naming of this child as God saves even before it happens? Because remember, he doesn't have this special knowledge to go, oh, and look, Isaiah 7.14 says that, that the, the prophet says that God will give birth through a virgin, and they will name him Emmanuel, which means God's with us. Like, oh, that's about this kid. He didn't have that part. Matthew made that connection after Joseph's life. Now, maybe he went to the priest, and maybe the priest mentioned something about this, but I don't think so. And all of us experience times before we get to the yes, where we have to say, before I know, will I believe? And it's that crazy mixture of fear and shame and uncertainty that you don't have to live in. What do you believe about God's power? See, I think that Mary modeled this in the same way when she said, behold, or yes, here am I. I am the Lord's servant. Let this happen according to your word by the power of the word, by the thing that God can accomplish when he speaks, this will happen. I'm God's servant. I'm not the main character in the story. I'm just a great supporting character in the story. God is the main character of the story. And if I live that way, life will make sense a lot more. So, what do you believe about who God says you are? What do you believe about God's presence with you? And what do you believe about God's power? See, I think if we have this down, even if it's not going to be easy, I don't think it was easy for Joseph and Mary. I just think they got to experience an incredible adventure and certainly a whole lot more because they said yes to God. See, I think this couple that I read about, David and Joy Short, really demonstrate what this means for us. The Shorts were just a couple that was living a good life in Christ Church, New Zealand. They had two jobs that were good. They had a nice home, two cars. They had a boat. They had bikes. They had toys. All of it free and clear. Debt free. And yet, they were childless. And they wanted, actually, they felt that God was leading them to adopt children. And so they started researching adoption agencies, and they ended up going to flying to Romania to get two girls. 
and they didn't have the systems in the internet searches that we have today, so they flew in and they were shown lots and lots of beautiful girls. They went to several different orphanages, several different hospitals, and one time when they were at a very out-of-the-way hospital, they said, well, what about the kids with you know, special needs, like real, real serious needs? Because we think that God wants us to adopt some of those children. And in that moment, one of the nurses heard and, and talked about this, this room called the dying room. And the dying room, as they were led down this hallway after they had heard about it, which was down several hallways, to where the lights went from bright in the hospital to dark in the hospital, to the corner of the hospital, to almost outside, barely heated part of the hospital. And it's literally where they left the sick infants who were not expected to live. They literally just left them there until they died. David and Joy see this and they say, well, we want one of those girls. And they bring two girls back with severe health problems. And yet with a lot of love and major doses of prayer and health care and hard work, these girls started making significant progress. And so they they, they thought this was great, but they didn't sense God saying, you're done. Yes, more. And they adopted a boy with severe behavioral challenges and their family grew to five. And we, they heard God saying, no, not done, yes. And so they said yes to twins from the Pacific Islands, twins that had major, major eating problems. And so this family of seven defied the pressures from the outside and the pressures from the inside when all their neighbors or several of their neighbors thought they were just downright foolish. Their bank account went from like full and debt-free to completely empty. They sold their toys, they sold their bikes, they sold their boat, they kept their cars because they needed them in the freezing nights where they had to drive the twins to the hospital because they had pulled out their nasogastrinal tube that was feeding them. And at night... When they put all the kids to bed, their house looked more like a war zone than a peaceful, joyful place. But when they were asked why they said yes, and yes, and yes, their response was quite telling. They said, why not? God has filled us with so much love. We just thought we needed to share it with those who probably needed it most. And friends, this is what the heavenly God of the universe did for each of us. Because he saw a people that were in serious need. He says, I'll go down. I'll put on flesh. I'll become an infant, a helpless, dependent child. I will teach them the true way to be human. I will live the perfect life in my human form, putting aside my godly powers, but not re- losing my God self and, and I will let them kill me so that they can experience true life. And if God of the universe has poured out this kind of love for us, his ask in return is that we say yes to him. And when you do, it's not easy, but it's the best adventures in the world. As the band comes up, would you just consider these three questions. And this week, in the spaces you find yourself, in the situations you find yourself, 
would you pause for God to speak to your soul before you respond? What do I believe about who God says I am? What do I believe about God's presence with me? And what do I believe about God's power? God, we thank you that you did send yourself in the person of Jesus and you did show us what it means to live in relationship with you and God, we admit that we do not do it well. God, I admit that I far too often count the number of people in the checkout lines and go to the shortest one. I admit that I often run past the Salvation Army person saying a very quick but often flippant prayer. I admit that I don't say yes enough to my friends that ask for coffee. And God, in spite of all that, you love me and you call me your son. And I pray for each person here that they would know that they would know that they know they are your child, that you love them, that you want them to receive and be accepted into a family, an eternal family, and yet one that is on earth until you come back in the church. And that we would sense your love and that we would accept your love. I pray specifically for those who've never said yes to you, that they would say yes to the most important gift, salvation. You with us, God. That you cover all of our sin like the snow outside is covering the ground that you have paid for all our sin with the blood of your son and that we say yes to life with you. In Jesus' name, amen.